If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the New Testament this morning as we have transitioned out of and away from the book of Exodus uh, over the past spring and summer. And this morning we find ourselves uh, in the book of Colossians. A couple of words about uh, why we have moved sort of to this book. I I began to think and to pray through uh, this past spring, uh, thinking through the fall semester and what it is that God would, would have us walk through together as a church during this pulpit time. So many of the truths that are found in Colossians that deal with our own personal identities and who we are as a people, who God has called us to be as a people, the security that we have from being a people that walk faithfully in Christ, the the idea that we as a church would have to fight off at times the wrong and false doctrines of this world and forgetting who Jesus namely is and how wonderful he actually is. But most importantly, perhaps in the midst of all of that, the role of the local church in the life of Fort Worth, Texas and our place before one another, our place before a holy and righteous God. In 2020, Gallup issued a statement and their study out of that statement said that 47% of U.S. adults belonged either to a local church, a synagogue, or a mosque. That number may not mean too much to you, except for the fact that 20 years prior to that, that statistic was not 47%, but rather 67%. And so over the course of 20 some odd years, there has been a over 20% decline in those that would be actively involved in the life of a church, in the life of a synagogue, or in the life of a mosque. Now, the reason that Gallup gives this statement, they say this change is primarily due to the rise in Americans with no religious preference. It goes on to say that for the local church, the people that were polled, oftentimes they were asking questions of how would it have any relevancy in my life? What would be different about me? How would the church serve me? How would my life be different if I attended or if I did not attend? Because for many of those that attended, their lives were no different. And so we began this 20 year decline. Oftentimes we don't ask the question, why is the church necessary until the church is necessary in our life? We've seen this play out, at least in my own life, over the past several weeks. One with a funeral that took place this past week with Susan Keen and seeing the church come and gather around that family and to love that family who had been faithfully walking with God here at Travis Avenue and as God called her to be home. I also saw it this past week, as many of you know of uh, Hadley and Crystal, the Warner family, who their daughter, Emily, tragically died this past week. And visiting with Hadley and visiting with Crystal and Allison, her sister, and Matt, one of the questions that came up on Friday, rather, one of the statements that came up over and over again from Crystal in particular was how grateful she was for her class. They're actively a part of and engaged in the Dow Sunday School class and in the meaningful relationships that have existed there in that moment so that in times of tragedy, that group and that circle could, could gather around the Warners and to love them in their time of grief. Friend, I would tell you with my own eyes that the church is still deeply relevant. That the church is still deeply needed in the life, that it changes us, that it, that it molds us, and it helps shape us into the people that God wants us to be. But, but here's the concern this morning. 
is I often wonder how far off in tone and in truth we are when we speak about the church in light of how Paul and how Jesus speak about the church. How often our, our tone begins to change and it goes awry. How often our, our truth of the gospel and, and what we are built upon, how we seemingly seem to, to miss the mark oftentimes within the broader cultural perspective. I would contend to you today that Paul wouldn't recognize many of those who claim to speak for the church today. Both in the truth in which we proclaim and the tone and the way in which we say it. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Colossians, he finds himself in prison. And his friend, his mentee, comes to him and he says, listen, Paul, there's a problem in the, in the church of Colossae that you established all those years ago on one of your missionary journeys. Colossae being uh, about 80 miles inland from the city of Ephesus, it was a bunch of real just country and, and almost rural folk that existed out there. And Paul travels out there and he, and he establishes, or rather by, by extension of him, Paul hadn't gone just yet, but, but he establishes a church in the city of Colossae. And, and as that church begins to grow and as it begins to flourish, and as those that are far from God begin to, to grasp hold of, of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, that they needed a redeemer and someone to reconcile themselves to them. This group of people began to creep into the life of the church, a group of people that many of you know as the Gnostics. And these Gnostics, they were considered to be what we would just deem them today as the spiritual elite, if you will, of their day. They were false teachers propagating a false gospel. They considered themselves to be people of great knowledge learned individuals, and they were certainly more than willing to, to let those who, who were not as spiritual as them, to let them know what it was they were missing to help them attain deeper levels of the faith. And so this Gnosticism began to grow and they began to teach this idea that anything that was physical, anything that was material is wrong. And as a people, we should distance ourselves from those things. Now, now hear the, the element of truth that exists in that. We, we don't have to say that all things and material things are bad, but, but when they consume us and it's all we think about, we know that they can lay hold of us. And so this element of truth that existed within the life of the Gnostics who, who believed that anything physical, anything that was created, rather that was simply just evil. And therefore, Jesus, taking physical form, he could not be the God that saves them and that redeems them. And therefore, God couldn't have created the world. And so what they propagated was this idea that, that God created these lesser gods and that lesser God created a, an even lesser God and, and on and on and on it goes until eventually there was this God who was so distant from the original God that that God somewhere down the road was the one that brought the world and time and those things into existence. But the God that had revealed themselves in the scriptures, he certainly could not. And they began to lead the people to believe that Christ really wasn't the son of God, that he really wasn't sufficient, that he could not take upon a physical body, that he was this ghost-like phantom, not some creator. The incarnation was not real. And more pointedly, Jesus's death was not enough for them. And so Paul gets word of this of a terrible circumstance in the life of a group of people that he deeply loves. And I want you to notice beginning in chapter one, beginning in verse one, I want you to notice how he comes before them, not in a condemning way, 
But rather what he does is he recalls to mind and he celebrates the people that he serves with by extension. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Knowing all of the problems and the circumstances that existed in the church, I want you to notice just in the very beginning how Paul leads with a, with a kind word and with a tone that, that has this idea of this pastoral concern and care and, and love and affection for his fellow believers, for his brothers and sisters in Christ, for his image bearers that hold the same image. Paul doesn't attack the problem, but he begins with this introduction and he celebrates who in fact they were, a poor pagan people who were once far from God without hope, but had somewhere along the way had found and beholden the glory of Christ. And so he says to these saints, to these faithful brothers, and I want you to notice perhaps one of the most important phrases in the New Testament. He says, these faithful brothers who are, if you're circling in your Bible, circle these words, who are in Christ. Faithful brothers, faithful sisters, image bearers who are in Christ. That phrase means this idea that all real believers partook of all that Christ had done, all that he is and all that he was and all that he ever will be. It means that, that God, as Paul writes elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. To be in Christ means that, that he chose us before the foundation of the world, which resulted ultimately in our redemption, which resulted ultimately in the forgiveness of sins that comes for those that would trust him and call upon his name, that ultimately leads to the hope someday of a renewed, glorified body, that we would be sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of God's promise to fulfill what it is that he said, in Christ, my faithful brothers and sisters, in the church to whom I love. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Amen. This phrase that Paul is often fond of within his epistles, grace and peace, it's a blend of a, of a Greek and a Hebrew greeting at the same time. You see, the customary greeting within the Greek world, it was a form of, of grace, which just simply meant, hello, and, and how are you doing? But in Paul's hands, it, it came to mean so much more. To greet the church in this way or to greet a believer in this way, it, it carries with it this idea of, of we are celebrating the work of God in your life, that you had received the unmerited favor of God when you called upon his name, when he saved you and when he redeemed you. It's celebratory in its nature, but it's also commissioning in the sense of saying this, when I say grace to you, it means to celebrate the goodness of God, but it means to go under the authority of that grace. To be commissioned out, to walk in a, in a humble dependency before him, in a spirit of, of humility before the world and, and trusting in, in who he is to be that recipient of God's favor. And so what that means is you are now distinct from the rest of the world. You are distinct from your neighbors who are far from him and you walk in that grace. But then he also uses the phrase peace, which was a Hebrew term. 
And it meant more than just simply hoping you have peace or the absence of trouble in your life, but rather this well-being that, that springs from being in the presence of God. Because you are in his presence, you have the peace. Because you go with his presence, you have the peace. And yet oftentimes when we look out into the world and even into the life and the hearts of, of believers who know Christ, there is oftentimes no peace. There are things that are vying and jockeying for our attention at all times that, that wish to do nothing more than, than to simply disrupt our peace. To send us into turmoil and places of despair and lacking hope and longing for better days. Grace and peace to you. The presence of God go with you, my friend, as you go about your lives, as you serve in your families, as you go about your work. And one of the things that we must guard against as a people of God is we must eliminate the things in our life that disrupt our peace. We don't have to look too far within culture today that nowhere is this more evident of a disruption of peace and in the way that we would just simply, all of us here today, would use our personal cell phones. And scientists have studied this over the course of the past decade and saying that the reason so many of us are attached to our phones is when we use social media, there's a chemical that is released in our brain called dopamine. And every time we look, that chemical is released and it sends signals into the brain and it puts you on this unending loop over and over and over again. And listen to me, I'm not talking to the, to the high schoolers, I'm talking to the senior adults too that I see out and about at restaurants on Facebook just like everybody else. And it puts us on a loop. And over and over and over again, we go and we become addicted to it. Oftentimes, it's the first thing that we look at in the morning when we wake up. It's the last thing that we see before we go to bed. And do you know that over a decade, what these scientists have concluded, that it is making us a more irritable people. It is making us a more uh, hostile people, less hospitable in all of our ways. It is disrupting our Peace. It is disrupting being oftentimes in the presence of our God. And so when Paul says grace and peace to you, to go with the peace of God in your life, to move forward with that peace and to understand that peace and to not let uh, those external factors worry and weigh you down. Listen to me, friend. I think the reminder here in that moment is to never let tomorrow's worries destroy the peace that comes from sitting with Jesus today. That we can let tomorrow worry about itself. We can let tomorrow take care of itself and to not let it disrupt us being in the presence of God, the peace of God, experiencing the grace of God in our life. Never let those worries destroy the peace that comes from sitting with Jesus today. But I do want you to notice, and I think it's important within the text that, that he begins when he says, grace to you first and peace second. You see, I think this teaches us theologically something that, that we must grasp here today is that God's grace always comes before his peace. That you can never have peace in your life apart from his grace in your life. 
that you can never really appreciate the peace that he gives unless you have experienced his unmerited favor in your life. It is God's work in our lives that leads us to have the right relationship with him. His grace always comes before his peace. But secondly, I want you to see in the text, beginning in verse 3, the spirit of thankfulness that exists within Paul's letter. And I think it teaches us intuitively in this moment that as we interact with one another and believers, that we ought to show thankfulness to the people that we serve with. For Paul says in verse 3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we pray for you. Since the very day that we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that has been laid up for you in heaven. Notice how he speaks about the love that the people in Colossae have for one another and the care that they have that is demonstrated with one another. Friend, I'm here to tell you whether you've been hurt by the church or wounded by the church or just getting back into the church or maybe you've been faithfully walking with the church, everyone in church walking in community experiences hurt oftentimes in that community. And churches are made up of, of imperfect people that are simply trying to serve a very perfect and excellent Savior in all that we do. And there are going to be hiccups and there's going to be roadblocks and speed bumps along the way. Churches are not perfect, but, but God has an enduring purpose for the church. And I am more convinced today than ever that the local church is still plan A in God's very mission in accomplishing His will here on this earth. That it is the thing that, that he has brought forth into existence to say that I will use my church to make my name great and to let my name be known to the uttermost parts of the world. The local church is plan A in God's mission. And to be on mission, we must, we must be a part of the local church. Oftentimes we think about our faith in Christ as if it is some sort of individual experience. And certainly it is that, that we have to call upon the name of the Lord ourselves, that your faith can't save me and my faith can't save you. And so you trust and you call. But when God calls you to salvation, what he does is he calls you into his community then at that point. Just as the Godhead functions as Father, Son, and Spirit, and, and they are, and need one another to come alongside, they function in the context of community. And so God saves us, not so that we can privately live out our, our lives and our, and our faith and tell no one and show no one and demonstrate to no one, but rather He saves us and redeems us and He brings us into His faith family, into His community to build His kingdom and to execute His mission. Amen. It's how He accomplishes His will. And oftentimes I think that somewhere along the way, people miss the idea of thinking with gratitude and thankfulness for the church. You see, when you are invested in the people that you serve with, when you are invested in the people that you, that you worship with, you, you care about them. And when you care about someone, you, you eventually you grow perhaps to, to love them deeply. And when you love them deeply in the spirit of Christ, you, you begin to overlook minor offenses and those little bitty molehills that have become mountains often in your mind. You, you overlook them because you know that you deeply care for the person that you're there. You know them and, and they know you just like you would in your marriage relationship. You would overlook the offense, the, the small thing. And you wouldn't let it get you sideways in any way when we are deeply committed to one another and they are deeply committed to us. We will do whatever we can to see the presence of God in this place, in this room, on this campus, in this city. 
But I want you to notice and I want you to see as Paul expresses thankfulness in verse 3, Paul identifies the, the, the colloquial phrase, faith, hope, and love, but we see that it's a little bit out of order here in this moment as we're used to reading it. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love that you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. When Paul uses the word faith, it's always mentioned typically in the, the trio, uh, faith, hope, and love. And without faith, there, there truly can't be any hope and there can't be any love. But notice what Paul was doing in this moment. He was drawing their attention in that moment to the object of their faith, to the thing in the, in the person that they had put their faith in, their faith, namely, and, and emphatically here in this moment, their faith in Christ. You see, faith in and of itself, it has no intrinsic value, but rather faith, it derives its value from the object in which it beholds. We can have our faith in all kinds of things, in our retirement accounts, in our homes, in our families, and in, in people. We can have all of those things in the wrong places. The, the value that comes from our faith is the object in which we behold. I would even go so far as to say that salvation comes not from believing in the idea of belief, but rather salvation or even in a set of, of having the right doctrine or having the right creed, though those things should accurately reflect the object of what we and who we behold. Salvation comes by believing in Christ. He is the one that, that gives our faith the value today to, to stand before you and to sit before his word. But then he goes on and he says, and this love that you have for all the saints. I find that Paul in this moment, that for faith, it proves itself a reality that if we have true saving faith and our object that we behold is correctly Christ and the way that works itself out is how we then love and how we then care. Notice what he says, not neighbor, but rather how you love the saints. Rather how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, how you care for one another and come alongside one another, the love that you have for all the saints. Those who are loving God and, and even loving neighbors, John 13 uh, tells us elsewhere the love that we have for other believers. You see, everyone knows perhaps good moral people who have little love. They're, they're right people, they're, they're morally okay, they, they don't mess up, they've not made big mistakes, but, but when you talk to them and, and in their presence, they, they don't come across as, as simply being very loving and kind people. They're what Mark Twain famously called, they are good men in the worst sort of way. Good, righteous folks with little love that exists anywhere within their hearts. He goes on and he says, because of this hope that is laid up for you in heaven. I think in this moment, what Paul does is he puts hope on the, on the tail end of this because this is the wellspring from which faith and love come from. How? Well, as a lost people, the Colossians had been without God and they had been without hope. They had no hope that existed within their life. And then comes the gospel and Epaphras and Philemon and the joy that comes from salvation. And now they are a people that are filled with hope. One of the statements that I heard several times this past week 
It's coming alongside those that would grieve because they have lost dear loved ones as they would simply make this statement over and over and over again. I don't know how people that don't know Jesus do this. And the reason why they would make that statement is because they have a hope. They have something that they long for and something that they look to. It's like 1 John 3 says this, what we will be has not been made known, but what we know is that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall finally see Jesus as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is poor. Years ago, I came across a book by a gentleman by the name of Viktor Frankl. And he was a Jewish Austrian doctor who was in prison at Auschwitz, Auschwitz in World War II, and he survived. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, in which in this book he tells stories of his times in that concentration camp, and he talks about in particular, which makes the book so interesting, was how certain prisoners, with death approaching and, and death on their footstep, how they dealt with despair. And he says that many of them responded to their hopeless situation by becoming very brutal people, even in the midst of those camps. They became cruel to others and even cruel to themselves. They, they adopted really a survival of the fittest, but, but others, Frankel said, just simply gave up. And I quote, he says this, usually this happened quite suddenly. The symptoms of which were familiar to us who had been in the camp for a while. We all feared for this moment for our friends, the moment we would just relent and give in. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or, or wash or go out and parade the grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They, they just lay there defeated and, and hopeless. They had given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they had simply had no hope. Many, he goes on later to say, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, their health and their family, their professional achievements, their fortune, position in society, all of that would be restored. But what many of them found is even after they were liberated from those camps, they found those th things irretrievably gone and changed. And many of them went into great deep depression. And many of those survivors of that camp actually committed suicide. They were in such despair because their hope was in all the wrong things. Frankel says that the ones who truly overcame Notice, I quote these words, were those who had a fixed reference point outside the world. To the ones that were looking to, to the next life, to something that would come later on, not the temporary gain that, that we would experience, not the redeeming quality of, of going and living that good life, but rather the person who fixed their eyes on something beyond what they could see right in front of them. They had this living hope. They understood this hope laid up for them. And we as the Christians would say the hope that we have in heaven, namely the treasure that we receive in and getting to behold and to see Jesus. Lastly, I want you to see how Paul reminds them of the foundation in which they have built their entire ministry there in the church, beginning in the latter half of verse five, where he says this, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel 
which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and it is increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has made known to us your love in the spirit. You see what Paul's doing in this moment is he's reminding us that the work God does in his church is through the gospel. That any pastor, teacher, evangelist, any speaker, any deacon, any leader, any follower who would build his ministry, who would build his life apart from the gospel of Jesus, builds it all in vain. The gospel being the, the news that, that our God, the one and only God, holy and righteous, creating us in his image to, to know him and to be known by him. But yet Genesis 3 comes in and it says there was this division and we have sinned and we have cut ourselves off from him because he is holy and he is righteous. Yet because God is so great and rich in love, he sends his son Jesus to come and to rescue us to deliver us from sin and death and evil. And he comes as this mediating priest so that we can come to the Father through him. And he comes as a priest, but yet he comes as a sacrifice and he lives this life of utter perfection and he dies on the cross and he fulfills the law perfectly. And Jesus takes upon the punishment for our sins. And he absorbs the, the wrath of God. He becomes what First Peter talks about, the propitiation of our sins, the, the wrath of God absorbed on and through the Son. But he satisfies it. He dies, and three days later, he is resurrected, proving he was who he says he was all along, proving that now through him we can have a relationship with our God. And now the message of that gospel is that we would be a people who announce the good news and call others as we ourselves repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. In other words, more simply put, the gospel is the good news about what Christ has done to reconcile sinners to God. Amen. And here's the catch. God calls us into this place, into this room, into this worship facility to be reminded of that truth, not so that we would take it and hold it with us until next week, but rather that we would leave here and be sent out on mission with him. That we would then go and we would then seek and we would then pray and we would then ask, God, who is it in my life, in my, in my world that I live, which neighbor, which family, which uh, department store clerk, who are the people in my life that you would put that maybe I could testify to your goodness in my life and that I could see them, I could make the announcement, the good news that God has come through Christ to reconcile sinners to himself. But I could build my livelihood and my family, my job, that I could build my relationships on this very foundation, this word of the truth, this gospel which he wants me to proclaim. The work God does in his church is always foundationally through his gospel. Friend, this week I just simply ask you, would you live on that mission? Would you be sent out of here and live faithfully to do what God has called you to do, to be prayed up full of the Holy Spirit? and be about living that gospel. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to the church in Colossae. 
Father, we pray that as we begin this series that we would have your blessing in your hand. That we would think through clearly on how we speak about the church and how we talk about the church to others. Father, that we be challenged by the faith of, of this group of people that we stand before you and talk about today. And that what if Paul wrote a letter to the church at Travis, would he say the same thing? Father, I pray that we would strike the right balance between the truth of your word and the tone in which we say it. I pray you'd give us a pastoral heart just as you gave Paul towards these people, though he, he speaks frankly with them later, Father, we, we know and we agree with, but Father, would you help us love one another? Father, could one of the distinguishing marks here at our church be how we care and, and love for each other? And so, Father, I know there is a spirit of faithfulness in that. I pray that you would allow us to remain in that posture, in that rhythm, in that pattern. For ask these things in the name of Christ and God's people said, amen. amen.